Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. It puts the podcast on its playlist. It's 1991, and the movie? Silence of the Lambs. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list and see if they still are really as good as people say they are. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films we watch now? Today we're going to be talking about Silence of the Lambs. But before we get into that, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the film we talked about last week, which of course was Tootsie, which our Facebook group has decided does not belong on the AFI list. Were they influenced maybe by our conversation, your passionate plea, Amy, that we're trying to make room for some new blood on this list and then they, they uh, like savages, killed Tootsie. It was a sacrificial lamb. I, I don't know. Yes, everyone listens to me. No, no one listens to me. Are you saying <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think that this movie, uh, you know, it, it's a fun movie and I think a lot of people felt like the movie they connected to, they really like, but it's not worthy of necessarily being on this list. No, there is interesting moving and shaking and developments happening in the unspooled verse. Mm. The Facebook group has created an unspooled book club. Did you hear about this? I did. This is amazing. It's awesome. They have called it Unbound. Ooh. It's going to be run by At Second to Last Jedi, and they're picking books and reading them together and then talking about them. And right now, they have picked as their first book a good selection. The novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. They're going to alternate between fiction and nonfiction. It's going to be awesome. I, I love really this. love this. And I love our Facebook group. And I want to just give a shout out to everyone who helped uh, Amy and I as we kind of prepared some new information as we're getting ready to get to our 50th episode. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. We appreciate it so much. And you'll see in the next coming weeks our unspooledpod.com website kind of updating with a lot of new information that you helped us uh, pull together. It is awesome. This has been a cool week for just like things taking place in the universe, people mm. creating things. Like listener Marissa Messier, uh, she's at DUI Direct. She has started to go through the list from the beginning. She's just started her unspooled process and she's been making theme cocktails for each one. She started out with a drink called the Rosebud for Citizen Ooh. Kane, which she actually tweeted at me the ingredients. I was very excited about it. It's vodka, cointreau, fresh mint, lime juice, Angostura bitters, pinch of salt, 
all shaken with a burst of Keynesian ambition, she said. Ooh, I love that. That was her Friday night. And on Saturday night, she made a drink called the Twinkle Toes for swing time. It's got some gin for ginger, some bow ties on it for Fred, on the glasses, actual bow ties, and champagne. I love this. This is great. I want to have one of these drinks. You know, and I feel like talking about watching film and enjoying film, Frecklefart90 was really excited that we're done with the die and says, when this podcast started, I'd only seen eight of the AFI 100. I've now seen 48. Uh, Thanks so much for that. I've never seen a silent film, a black and white film, a musical. Every movie so far has made me see their influences everywhere. Um, I appreciate that. And I've been getting a lot of tweets about that lately. I think as we approach 50, people are finding the podcast more and more. And we always are saying, like, recommend it to your friends and jump in wherever you want. And um, it's a great way to kind of have a great movie experience every single week. That's what I've been finding is it's like every week I know I'm going to watch one pretty good movie even if we don't agree that it belongs on the list it's an enjoyable experience yeah exactly exactly i mean again the list doesn't mean things get deleted forever from no. history it's like awesome i've really enjoyed thinking about every single episode we've done and a, a tweet like that makes me so happy because i just love the idea that like we're all in this together yeah and a big shout out to sean fennessy who uh gave us a very nice tweet about our podcast we are fans of his podcast and uh you know we appreciate uh all that Cross uh, podcast love. Um, yeah, I'm going to embarrass Sean Fennessy. Hey, Sean, if you're listening to this, a friend of mine told me that she always listens to all of your podcasts and you're her made up imaginary boyfriend. I hope that I hope that she's very sweet and lovely. And I just wanted you to know that right now in public. Hello. I love that. And um, and talking about things that we love. Um, let's talk about a type of food that we can't live without. Last week, we asked you to call in in your best Hannibal Lecter voice and tell you your favorite type of food uh, that would seem maybe a little bit odd or out of sorts in the Hannibal Lecter voice. Let's take a listen. Hello, this is Sean from Portland, Oregon. I would like a braised coccyx in a bowl of steaming SpaghettiOs with a side of sautéed alfalfa and a can of RC Cola. Hello, Clarice. For my last meal, I'd like Rocky Mountain oysters with a nice ranch dressing. I'll have the liver with some avocado toast and a pumpkin spice latte. Yes, I would like a Whopper with cheese. No pickles. No onions. I'd love to have some five guys. I'd like to eat five guys. (laughs) <laughs> Those are great. I think Hannibal Lecter talking about uh, Five Guys Burgers really uh, did it for me there. You've had Rocky Mountain oysters, haven't you? Oh, right. Isn't that like goat testicles? Isn't that like a thing from like... Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's specifically goat, but it, oh, yeah. is it specifically goat? I don't, I don't know. know. I remember Funny Farm. I think it was in that Chevy Chase movie, which is on the list, right? The AFI list? Did yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, it's next. Yeah. Oh, great. Oh, that'd be a fun <laughs> one to talk about. Um, Amy... Uh, you want to get into this week's feature presentation? Do I ever. All right, here we go. The year is 1991. Brian Adams' song, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, is a big hit. Pee Wee Herman, a.k.a. Paul Rubens, is caught in adult theater doing a very inappropriate public act. Jeffrey Dahmer is captured, and Super Nintendo costs $199.98. Full House is one of the most popular shows on TV. The Gulf War ends following Operation Desert Storm. A gallon of gas costs $1.12. And People's Sexiest Man Alive is Patrick Swayze. The top movies of the year were Hook, Terminator 2... And of course, today's film, Sounds of the Lambs, which took home five Oscars for Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Writing, is rated number 74 on the 2007 list 
down nine points from its 1997 rating at 65. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Silence of the Lambs. This is based on a novel by Thomas Harris. It's directed by Jonathan Demme and written by Ted Talley. And what it is about, it is about Jodie Foster as a young FBI agent trainee. Her name is Clary Starling, and she is put on a minorish sounding mission by her boss, played by Scott Glenn, uh, to go interview Anthony Hopkins, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And she realizes that this is part of the path to figure out who is this killer, Buffalo Bill. Can she get Hannibal Lecter to help her? Does he really want to help her? What is for dinner? What is happening? It is a dark, 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 dark thriller. And it also has Roger Corman as FBI director Hayden Burke. I didn't realize that. Yeah, Demi is a Corman guy. I know we're not rolling the die anymore, but I wanted to bring up my first thesis to you. There's so much talk about about this film, but I couldn't help notice the connections to Tootsie. Yes, I feel like even without a Zocahedron, there is some sort of guiding hand. I don't believe in a, a higher power, but perhaps I believe in a higher film power. The main storyline is really about a woman being in a man's world. Every time she's in a scene with a man, they are looking at her, they're leering at her, they're trying to pick her up. And I think a lot of that goes to the way that Jonathan Demi directed it. You really are in her POV for this entire movie. You're watching this movie through her eyes. I really appreciate this movie on a whole nother level on this viewing. Yeah, you are dead on. I'm like knocked out by the camera work in this film. There are so many scenes where Clarice walks into a room and you just have the camera spin around in a circle as all of these men, like a frozen tableau, just stare at her. They take her in. They're like, who is she? Why is she in this room? You feel that. You have these shots that are just like her point of view as a child, like running towards her dad, walking into like funeral homes, like, and also outside. Like one of the very first early shots we get is after she's like jogging through the woods, she gets into this elevator on the FBI campus and she's this little person. I mean, Jodie Foster is five foot three. She's not that short, but she's surrounded by giants in red sweatshirts. She's visibly out of place when we see her from outside. And she's like visibly taking in how out of place she is. She's aware of how out of place she is. She's not just like, I'm plucky and ignoring it. She sees it and we see her see it. And not only is she that, she's like a woman, you know, from like a poor county. She's a woman who's not even considered like a Yale type of woman who's like, oh, I'm built for this. Well, let me ask you about that. Do you think... She was really poor. I mean, she didn't seem like she was that poor. Yeah, she's not She's not entering with connections. What does Annabelle say? He says that she is uh, one generation removed from poor white trash. And right. he's continually noting that her shoes are second rate. It was interesting, though, to show that first flashback after that scene because it's sort of like Hannibal Lecter paints her as something. And then you see what it actually is. And I think in that moment, he calls out all of her insecurities. Whether or not they're true, I think all of us carry insecurities that are not necessarily true, but it's the way that we view ourselves. So I think it was really interesting to put the flashback there, too, because you see the reality of it. I think they really wanted to show you the juxtaposition of her feeling insecure, like he's seeing through her, and then also seeing it for our own eyes. I was really wrestling with it. I was like, all right, I don't think that his painting of her was exactly right. And I feel like in that moment, she's able to have a little bit over him in a way. A little bit, but like it's almost exactly what this film is sort of about. It's about people trying to get inside each other's heads mm. and being a little bit off, maybe, but trying their best. He keeps calling her on it, too. She's trying to understand how to get him to open up with a mix of like flattery by being very deadpan and admitting the truth of like, oh, what did that man said to me? He said, I can smell your blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he's like, 
Yeah, he, he's like, I notice how unafraid you are. And you're saying it that way because you know it'll make me like you better. And they're both just gaming each other and then calling each other out on gaming each other. It's And meanwhile, you have a killer who's literally trying to get inside people's skins physically. No wonder the FBI just jumped in to fully cooperate with this film. They really wanted to get more females in the FBI. And I think by showing a character like Jodie Foster, who feels out of place and maybe even that's a clarion call to women going like, oh, I don't feel like I'd be accepted if FBI. It's almost saying, no, 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 you would be. And if you're there, you'll be like her, you know. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. Like, I mean, Top Gun, the Navy was like, you can have full reign of our base if you call them Top Guns, if you make the Navy look cool. Because they were like, we don't look that cool. We got to look cooler. Yeah. And it worked. Like Navy enlistment went skyrocketing up. And then Silence of the Lambs comes out. The FBI tried to do the exact same thing to female recruits. I wonder if there's any connection between that and the fact that every girl, I feel like, of my generation, from podcasting to, like, reading creepy stories, we are all creepy, ghouly girls. We yeah. all love true crime. We all love murder. And there's something in this character that I think is in all of our DNA, even though I'm not going to ever run an obstacle course in my life, unless it's, like, Double Dare. Oh, my gosh. I would love to run that Double Dare obstacle course. <laughs> Be such a dream like of my dreams. Dream. That's my dream birthday party is someday to build that course. I don't know how it'll happen. By the way, Amy, let's go on Double Dare and be a team. We can get the geography. We can get the pop culture. We'll nail it. Do you I, care that I'll get a pie in your face? I'm clumsy. Uh, that You know what? I'll take the pie. I've been watching the new <laughs> Double Dare. It's great. There's uh, a new Double Dare? Oh, yeah. Mark Summers is now the announcer. And then there's this um, uh, this woman host, and she's great. And I, I watch it all the time. It's great. It's it, It's got everything you want. One of the interesting things, though, back to the idea of you know, getting in people's heads and showing the FBI in a real way was, you know, Jodie Foster did uh, a great deal of time with this FBI agent, Mary Ann Krauss, to kind of learn what it was like to be an FBI agent. The FBI agent gave her the idea to do that scene where she cries by her car. And I think that that's a really interesting moment because it's not showing her being weak. And I think, you know, the idea behind that scene was it's just a good way to get an emotional release. And these are characters that are in such a heightened emotional state that she's like, you know, sometimes you just need to take a moment there. And I feel like she's never weak, nor is she dumb. She's just a human being. And yeah, I, and crying I, is human. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I, that That is a mild trend I feel like I'm starting to see in just modern day movies about men. That like we're trying to make sure that we all know that crying is human. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's so interesting. And there's little bits in here too that I find – Fascinating because I feel like maybe somebody would have edited them out and I'm so glad they didn't. Like when she barges into Buffalo Bill's basement, mm -hmm. you know, she kicks open the door and the door like bounces back and hits yeah. her in the leg. I can imagine another director being like, retake, make it cooler. But they leave it in as a little bit fumbly. She's oh. trying. It's not exactly perfect. And that's what makes it feel really real. That whole end sequence. I mean, I want to talk about the cross cutting because that is so great. And it's one of my most memorable things from the film. When he has the goggles on her. It's so fascinating because she is literally in the dark. And that's how we all look in the dark. And it's so sloppy and it's not cool. And it's the way we all would be. I, I feel like there's something so humanizing in that moment. She is literally prey. There is a predator hunting her down and you see her weak and not able to use any of her faculties. I love that sequence. They live in it for such a long time 
uncut period of time. Yeah, I actually cut out a little bit of it because it's so creepy down there. It's so quiet. I mean, that's one of the only times you're out of her POV when you're in his POV and you see his hand reaching towards yeah. his hair. I just want to play a little clip of this picture. Scary things, green, people fumbling around. Let's all get a little bit creeped out just seeing how good they do this ending. I mean, all these sounds just being heightened. Like, you hear yes. the scratch of her fabric. You hear her breathing. You feel, like, almost as though you're blind because of how kicked up all the vocals well, are. Well, that's what I was going to say. You said, you know, we're out of her POV. I'd argue we're in her POV because what Buffalo Bill is doing in that moment, we're in a whole movie where men are looking at women, right? Boom. Or not women, at her, examining her, looking at her. And yeah, this even is, Hannibal Lecter is like, what's it feel like to have eyes on you? Yes. And so here at this moment, we finally get in the POV of, you know, the way that men are viewing her because he's looking at her so intently. We're more in her POV than we ever are in the entire film because you see through her in a way. It's such an amazing end to the movie because she is triumphant. You know, Buffalo Bill, spoiler alert, uh, doesn't make it out alive. With those loud sounds, as soon as she hears him cock his gun, she's on it. You know, here's somebody who goes from absolute weakness to absolute strength in, in in an instant, you know, from a cock gun. That's about it. But think about this. This is one of the things I think is really interesting about this film and the way it's structured. This whole series down here in the basement is like a labyrinth. You know, she's in this twisty corridor of tiny rooms that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. Here's a body in this one. Here's a well with a girl in that one. Here's a room full of moss in this other one. Like, this is a basement that makes no sense. It's this crazy labyrinth, you know, that she's trying to wind through knowing that there's this monster, this, like, minotaur Mm. that's waiting for her. And that's a lot of how the film is at the beginning. You see her I was just pre- going to write this down, yes. Yeah, preparing at the very beginning by running this obstacle course. I said and first like, shot, last ready. shot. It's It literally is showing like you yeah. have to be prepared for all these things. You know, she's literally in the wild, but she knows what to expect. And so she, when she's on that first course, there's a confidence in her kind of approaching it. And then you see her here having to improvise or something uh, yeah it's a really it's, it's true she's it's almost like being a jazz musician you can't improvise until you know the notes man. right you know i actually put a little bit of the beginning too just because a i love the noir music b mm. this opening is also really weird like these giant black and white fonts just oh, like all I wrote over this the down. image these are comically bad titles like to a point where i'm like did they were they experimenting with you know, movie magic or like Final Cut Pro here. I mean, these are shitty titles <laughs> in a time where titles were not that shitty. This is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this they're is... like B-movie titles, which I yes. kind of respect. And they're like B-movie titles over noir music, which I think is important to point out because this is often pointed to as one of the only horror films to be on the Academy Award list. One of the only horror films or maybe the only horror film to win the Best Picture Oscar. It, this film positions itself, I feel like, a B-movie noir, not at all a horror film. We didn't hear my favorite thing in that clip, by the way, which is every so often, there's just a hawk sound. You know? <laughs> <laughs> same like, hawk from uh, One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest? <laughs> I think the same hawk from McGruber. Okay. <laughs> there's also this really cool thing going in the movie with when the person on these tight close-ups is looking at the camera. 
You know, like Anthony Hopkins looks right up in the camera, right up close. Mm. But when they cut to Clarice in their conversation scenes, she doesn't look at the camera. She's looking off. So he's like confrontational and her eyes are always slightly askew. And when you start looking for that, there's a lot of times where people are staring at us and it's almost always men. And the only two times Clarice really looks at the camera, I find really interesting. The first one is when she gives her speech about the lambs. Mm -hmm. She's looking right at us then. That's when she like really connects. And the second one is kind of random and surprising. It's when she sits down with her friend um, who's played by Cassie Lemons and they hack this idea of the bodies coming up in different orders because you wanted them to be found that way. That's when she looks at the camera again. And it's just this moment of her being like looking at Cassie Lemons is sort Mm -hmm. of what you're inferring from it. But connecting again to this woman, like having this conversation with her best friend and they're connecting. And so there's just something so smart about that. Yeah. It's like these subtle little camera clues that Demi is using to say, like, when she's comfortable, when she's not, when she's honest, I when she's not. Yeah. But having all these other people stare at us to make us uncomfortable. This movie, the pacing is so tight. You are brought to Hannibal Lecter within minutes. Everything is laid out like, bam, 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 bam. You're just getting information thrown at you. Again, putting you in her POV. She goes from knowing nothing. You're the audience. You know nothing. You're learning about her. You're learning about everything. I would argue that this movie is not um, flashily directed, but actually extremely well directed, akin to like a Hitchcock film. Exactly. It's not the type of direction where you're like, whoa, the colors are so beautifully composed. Yeah, or how did you get that like shot? Yeah. Rothko painting. You know, this is just like thoughtful. Like he knows what every shot means. Yeah. He knows exactly what they mean. There's like beauty in the things that aren't beautiful. Because like part of my favorite things that he notices about Quantico when he's there is just how Quantico looks like a badass high school. Mm -hmm. You know, like the hallways are too small. Everything is kind of brick and narrow. You walk through classrooms of just people learning how to clean guns. It's very mundane. Yeah. And that's what I like about it. Except for my favorite weird visual joke, which is when she... I think she's taking a phone call in midway through the film and she's like walking through campus and there's a fake bank robbery or something yeah. behind her, which is just amazing. I want to go to that school. <laughs> That's the point break school. I mean, she is still doing those like little, you know, exercises. Like they cut to that one moment where she doesn't protect her, you know, her, uh, her six or whatever, her 12, which comes in handy at the end because she is protecting it. Now we're talking about how great the film is directed and how kind of all these choices are. Did you know that the original director of this film was going to be Gene Hackman. Our old buddy Gene Hackman. I know. Gene Hackman was going to star in this movie and direct, but he dropped out uh, days after he saw clips of himself as an FBI agent, Rupert Anderson in Mississippi Burning. Uh, He didn't want to do one dark role followed by an even more unlikable character, which is interesting to me because I think the reason why this movie is so good is because you have a really you know, first-class director attached to it. It, I don't think it would have gotten as well-received if it was potentially Gene Hackman. I'm not not bashing Gene Hackman's directing style, but I I think it really took a a first-class director to kind of make this not what you said, like a pulpy noir. I mean, Gene Hackman is the guy who, like, was really iffy about how dark his character got in French Connection. Although here he was going to play more of, like, an FBI guy. So would he really be that bad? I, I mean, know. how dark are any of the FBI characters in it? Like for him to be like, I can't, because it's not, Scott Glenn is not a dark character. I mean, he wasn't no, going to. he's just pragmatic. Yeah. I mean, talking about the what if worlds, uh, let's talk about the what if world of Michelle Pfeiffer over Jodie Foster. Because Michelle Pfeiffer was the first choice for Clarice. Uh, Demi wanted her. Demi uh, just worked with her and married to the mob. I mean, by the way, 
awesome that Jonathan Demi goes, here's a character. It's kind of big. It's like a My Cousin Vinny-esque character she's playing. And goes, now I'm going to ground her and put her in this. I think Michelle Pfeiffer is awesome. I'm following her on Instagram now. And I, it's every day is great. I mean, which is weird, though, because I heard like there were some debates. Like Michelle Pfeiffer also thought that she didn't want to be in a movie this dark. But then Is it the- this dark or is this the beginning of where we're at now? Because now we're in a world where everything is dark. You can clearly see that this movie set forth yeah. – all, from the movie Copycat with like Harry Connick Jr. and uh, Sigourney Weaver, like, you know, and all these films that we see. I mean, that's a real obscure one, but it's like. That, yes, that was. Uh, but there was this whole darkening of the early 90s. Yeah. The like jade years, the basic instinct right. years. It was a real dark stretch. So I guess maybe when I watched it, it still got me. This movie scared me. Like when I went to bed after watching it, I was like, I was still scared. But everyone's saying it's dark, it's dark, it's dark. It's not dark. It's scary. But it's not like, ooh, this, they really went to some places that I would never want to go to. Like, I mean, but I guess it's all about it's the time. It's not dark in the way Seven is dark. No, Seven is a seven dark. Seven is dark. Yeah. Seven is bleak. You, that's the difference. We're talking about the difference between dark and bleak, maybe. Mm. This movie is dark, but, like, people fight. People try. They're working. They're thinking. There's teamwork. People know what's up. Yeah. Like, Seven is just, oh, we're all going to die, and everyone is a horrible person, and, like, there's really nothing you can do to escape the misery of the planet. That's a very different type of dark. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I, I mean, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. It bums you out. It's, it's, it's the difference between, you know, watching, like, The Road and, like, uh, Transformers Revenge of the Fall. And it's like, yeah, they're both dealing with the end of the world on some level. But Wait, which one is the good one and which one is the bad one in that analogy? Oh, wow. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, like you can, you can kind of deal with the end of the world in a few different ways. Um, but also, though, I heard that like, they didn't want Michelle Pfeiffer because some people thought she was too pretty. And I feel like many conflicted ways about that. Mm. Because when somebody doesn't get a role because they're too pretty, then I feel like the subtext is, but Jodie Foster's not, which is sort of a bummer. Jodie also- Foster is unequivocally beautiful. Yeah. I think when I watch this movie too, you realize how old I've become or not, you don't realize that I do, but it's like, oh, I wow. I was that, thinking how old you are. Yeah. <laughs> because it's sort of like, oh, she looks so young. She looks like a kid. And and Anthony Hopkins looks young. You know, uh, it's just amazing to kind of, you know, you, when you age with these people that, you know, yeah. like, and it's, I'm always amazed by like, Judy Foster is somebody who is a good director, a great actress, and is still fighting for parts. I heard the same thing for uh, Sally Field in Lincoln. She had to, like, fight for the part in Lincoln. And as an actor, you realize, oh, it never ends. It just never ends. Like, you, if you want something, you have to go up there. You have to, like, eat shit. Like, she met him a handful of times to get this part. And I think that yeah, she, she actually... Yeah, she said, I'm happy being your second choice. Just let me be your second choice. I love it. And, and, and it, I think maybe even that mentality helps this character because this character isn't coming in as the first choice. The character is coming in as someone who wants to prove herself, which is very similar to what Clarice Starling wants to do. Exactly. And Starling is just such a cute little bird name too. I know. I was thinking about like, that. He's like, I'm a tiny little tough bird. Well, I mean, the idea of like, you know, the title of the movie, Silence of the Lambs, like when Anthony Hopkins was sent the script, he was like, am I doing a children's movie? Like, what is this? But like Starling, it's it's so genteel, you know, and, and, and I, you know, this reoccurring thing with the butterflies and the moths. It's like there's a lot of beautiful imagery and a lot of peaceful imagery in something that is so kind of dark as well. OK, do you want to hear what a screaming lamb sounds like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, just so you know, again, yeah, please, just so you know, we are watching video footage. This is not somebody else doing it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's what's in their dreams. 
that like Thomas Harris, who wrote the book Silence of the Lambs, is writing and goes, oh, you heard that the lamb screaming, but never had the ability to kind of Google it because movies, you know, were before the internet. Yeah. And, you know, so it sounds real cool, but immediately you Google it and it's so dumb. <laughs> so I just want everybody to hold that scream in your head as we hear Clarice talk about why she has to be oh an FBI agent. Now, please listen to me. We've only got five. No, I will listen now. After your father's murder, you were orphaned. You were 10 years old. You went to live with cousins on a sheep and horse ranch in Montana. And? And one morning, I just ran away. Not just, Clarice. What set you off? You started at what time? Early. Still dark. Then something woke you, didn't it? Was it a dream? What was it? I heard a strange noise. What was it? It was screaming. It was. Some kind of screaming, like a child's voice. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. I'm, no, it's so crazy. I'm crying. It's so funny to me. <laughs> Okay. But yes, very serious movie. A very serious movie. <laughs> All right. So who do you think was the first choice to play Hannibal Lecter? Oh, I heard they were considering Americans and then they couldn't they heard they couldn't do an American. Oh really? Well, I had heard the first choice was Sean Connery. Oh really? Which is an interesting choice because oh, I heard it was like Duval or De Niro, and then they were like, nah. No, it was Sean Connery. He read it first and found it to be revolting. So he turned it down. Then uh, at a certain point, like Derek Jacoby and Daniel Day-Lewis were also kind of considered. Um, all three choices, I'm kind of into. You know, I think Sean Connery would have been an interesting choice. He's very intimidating. I'd be terrified if Sean Connery came at me. Yeah. And I think what's kind of lovely about, you know, Anthony Hopkins, and this is where people fell in love or found Anthony Hopkins. Obviously, he was working. But this is where they really saw him for the first time. He becomes iconic is that he straddles this line of sweetness and and pure like you buy that he has killed people but you also buy that he probably won't kill you which is i think the hardest line to walk when playing a, a character like this like you see in the film him kill someone you also hear that he made someone next to him kill themselves like he yeah, just by talking he made somebody swallow their tongue until they die which i didn't even understand how that could possibly happen but i buy it and i just think that he walks this line where you still like him i mean he's scary but there is something approachable about him and i think you know it's a line that i think clarice kind of walks too like well he won't hurt me he's not going to come for me it's a beautiful beautiful performance and it's so mind-blowing to me that this character has become like fucking Jason or Freddy because the original intent of him is so unique and pure and interesting and he's gotten reduced down to that fucking face mask and the fava beans and a nice Chianti. And it sucks because watching this movie, it's like, he's not that. We don't need that. But... You make three movies of this character and oh, let's revisit this character. Fuck it. I don't want to see him eating Ray Liotta's brains. I don't know. I, I'm mad at this movie because they should have just let it end. How cool would it have been to have this character and never reprise it, put it on shirts or anything like that? He's He is a fucking movie monster now. I don't like it. 
Yeah, I mean, to Oliver. I mean, this is a character who was written that he's supposed to have, like, red eyes and six fingers, you know? Yeah. He, like he was, actually a werewolf. And there's something in his composure that I find really settling. There's something in the movements of a person who knows they're in control. A person in control doesn't have to, like, rage and stomp. You know, a person yeah. in control is just in control, standing upright, giving you a look. You know? Well, I mean, you know, he picked the idea that we're all white because he felt like people were afraid of like doctors and dentists and stuff like that. So even that idea of like, I'm going to stand completely still and be in white, like in white makes you feel like you're listening to someone who is the boss. It's a weird thing. It's a really interesting choice. One of the things that I love about it is like the way he described where he got his voice from. Mm. It's two people that we have already heard oh, really? on the show. He said that he thought of the voice as a mix of Catherine Hepburn. Uh-huh. And Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, and I actually heard a third, too. What was that? Truman Capote. What? Who looks uh, like Truman Capote? But but hearing uh, Catherine Hepburn is really interesting. Yeah, and people find her voice a turnoff. So it almost kind of adds to... I mean, I love her voice. If I could have, like, if that accent still existed, I don't know how the mid-Atlantic accent just died. I mean, but if you think about Truman Capote, he has his voice just a little bit like this. And this is where I get to do all my great voice work. And then, like, Catherine Hepburn's voice is, like, a little bit like that. And then Hal's voice is, like, hello, Dave. It's not the normal treble and bass of a, of a normal voice, I feel like. Oh, it's almost like the middle frequencies are stripped out. Yes. Pick- you know, and all of those voices, I would say, are maybe programmed. I can imagine a young Truman Capote making himself have mm. that voice, like willing it oh, into like existence. That. Catherine Hepburn learning it through elocution, you know, being mm-hmm. forced to have that it's voice a little as music well. man, yeah. And Hal's literally programmed. Yeah. Oh, so I it is that. an artificial voice for all three of them. And then putting it into this, this artificial character. Let's hear Hopkins himself talk about creating a character. What does he know about creating a character? We're pretty good about dissecting it, Amy. <laughs> dissect? Did you say dissect? The audience are fright because they talk about him for at least 10 minutes before he's seen as some kind of babbling psychopath. And I wanted to play him the opposite. They always play the opposite of what the audience expects. And it scares them more. Good morning. So what they see is a very polite gentleman's good morning from the FBI. It's like a cat watching a cat before it makes its pounce or a lion before it kills its prey. Well, I love that idea of playing against what the expectation is. I've forgotten now what I expected him to be because it is become so iconic. So you know him, you know all this, but imagine the first time like you're hearing about this serial killer. And what we knew about serial killers then versus now is totally different. We live in a world full of documentaries about serial killers, TV shows about them, mainstream cable based. Like we've seen We're in a world of empathizing with them or trying yeah. to crack them open that we weren't back then. I mean, back this is the unsolved mysteries era. I know yeah. because I was home alone as a child eating pizza. Like <laughs> me, I, I'm shocked my parents let that happen. No, but, but you, um, yeah, like you, but we I'm didn't fine. know. But to put ourselves in that headspace, I mean, let's listen again to the rules and imagine like being there in the theater, February 1991, and picturing who's going to show up when you get around this corner of the prison as you're making your way down yet another insane labyrinth to get to this monster. And we've seen, and as she walks down that hallway, we're seeing these insane people. Like you're seeing insane, insane, insane. So it's like the rule is the next one will be even more insane. Yeah. How are you going to build up from this? Pretty young woman to turn him on. I don't believe Lecter's even seen a woman in eight years. And oh, are you ever his taste? So to speak. I graduated from UVA, doctor. It is not a charm school. Good, then you should be able to remember the rules. 
Do not touch the glass. Do not approach the glass. You pass him nothing but soft paper. No pencils or pens. No staples or paper clips in his paper. Use the sliding food carrier. No exceptions. If he attempts to pass you anything, do not accept it. Do you understand me? Yes, I understand, sir. Can I say something about that shot, too? The pace of Chilton, like literally his pace of walking is so quick. The minute we see them walking in tandem, she's struggling to keep up, whether it's her shoes or whatever. And he is just driving down the lane. You're, you're, you're again, you're thrust into this world. But I just watch it again and just, I'm like, wow, he's so, everything is like putting her literally off balance before she goes into this. Exactly. And you listen to those rules and most of them got broken, including them by Mm -hmm. Chilton. Yeah. People get near the glass. He goes near him with a pen. He goes near him with a pen. He doesn't go near him. He goes in the cell. Yeah. Chilton, you dumb, dumb, dummy. (laughs) I mean, Chilton, that, that actor who plays Chilton, I think is fantastic in this film. He really is. He really is. That's Anthony Heald. At the end of the film, you know, when Hannibal is free and he's watching Chilton get off the plane in whatever kind of tropical uh, island they're in, I always assumed, like, that Chilton was free and clear. And what you I saw in this version was he's scared out of his fucking mind. He's looking over his shoulder. He's panicked. You hear, like, a little line about security. You see them walking through that street and he's constantly looking over his shoulder. And I was like... Oh, my God, this guy knows the end is coming for him. Yeah, that's why he flew to this island. I, I thought, like, he was kind On of like... On vacation? Well, not vacation. You know what? I think probably the, the version of my mind that saw this early on was like, oh, Hannibal Lecter is, like, following him, and he's going to kill him. You, I saw the panic in him, which I never really saw before. Because yeah. you are watching it more through Hannibal Lecter's eyes. You're not on his face in a very tight... You're you're very much in a distance from him. And then once I noticed it, I couldn't take my eyes off him. And as Hannibal kind of, like, circles in the back, you just see him panicked. And there's a couple of things I love about that. Like, one, this beautiful tropical island is gray. It doesn't mm. look like a vacation. No. It looks cold. It doesn't look welcoming. Two... Two things happen to Hopkins here. One, I think, is an accent. The other one, I don't know. But what he's wearing, the fedora, the all white, mm-hmm. and then the fly on his mouth, I was like, oh, oh yeah. Belloc. Oh, oh, what's up, Belloc? I was going, that's a Brando Apocalypse <laughs> Now moment. Because I was like, oh, it looks so cool. To Yeah, I mean, basically, we've talked about two films, now three, where a fly lands on someone's face and it looks so badass because they don't react to it. <laughs> yeah, like all the moths in this movie are like held up by little harnesses by a mm. moth trainer. But the, oh, flies, really? the flies are just random, I guess. Oh, wow. I mean, that fly definitely was not in the script. Oh, no. Oh, but, but, but. This but is, now this he does is have a... an agent, and his Netflix series is good, but not as good as his limit. Yes, he does have a Marvel Universe, many <laughs> alternate timelines. Um, this is like a minor, minor detail. I don't know if anybody else will care about this but me, but the moth trainer actually for Silence of the Lambs is in one of my favorite documentaries of all time. What is that? You get to see his face. I'm going to play this clip and see if anybody out there recognizes it. I'm going to give him a second. Okay. A friend of mine called me and he said to me, Ray, they found them. And I said, where? And he said, in oh, Africa. Wow. It's a thing called the naked mole rat and they have a society just like termites. Ray Mendez, the naked mole rat specialist from Errol Morris's Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah, he's not just a naked mole rat guy. He was a moth guy. So he's the one who, like, put all the moths on harnesses, made sure they were okay, froze them when they were coming out of their pupa so they oh, could pull wow. real... This movie was granted, like, a thumbs up by the ASPCA. Wow. Yeah, he, like, made the little uh, 
moth cocoon that they take out of the yeah, corpse's yeah, yeah. neck out of like Tootsie Rolls. Like Ray Mendez is just the man of nerdy, insecty, buggy things oh, I of love the that. 90s. You know, the movie poster has a big moth on it, right? And it's uh, the pattern on the back of the moth in the movie poster is not the natural pattern of the death head uh, hawk moth, because uh, I know that you know a lot about moths. We all do. We all clock this on the poster. We said, come on, guys, don't fool us with your bullshit. That moth is actually Salvador Dali's uh, voluptuous moors. Um, so, and it actually is a picture of seven naked women made to look like a human skull. I love it. So, so it's, it's perfect interesting. because it's yeah. corpses, it's bodies, it, it it's everything. It still works movie. perfectly, yeah. Also, I didn't realize that this is really on my mind, but A... I have a couple moths in my house, and I don't know how to get rid of them. I don't want to hurt them. Honey. Honey? Right. But will it hurt them? Will they, like, get stuck? No, that they, then they say, oh, he must have fed him honey. He gave them honey. Oh, so they went, like, I could get them, like, out of my closet. I mean, I... why do you have them in your closet? I don't know. They're just hanging out there. There was one in my car the other day. It freaked me the fuck out. I was driving, and a moth just right in my face. Like, ah! I mean, on that same note, like. Mothballs, Amy. You're afraid <laughs> of mothballs? Oh, do the mothballs make them go away? Or does, I don't want to, I just don't want to kill them. I don't but, know what mothballs do. It seems like such a, a, a past problem. But yes, well, I, I guess I'm kill. a hipster. I'm bringing moths in your closet back. I love it. But um, also, two things that I did kill. Uh, we did just get this entire lamb. Speaking of like silence of the lamb, yeah, yeah, we got this entire roast lamb. It was like fifty pounds from the, a guy in the valley who like roasted it, and I had to put it in my hatchback to get it home. Uh-huh. And like the little hooves were hitting the back oh. of my trunk. And um, and it was really weird because all the windows were up, but I kept hearing this like rustling, and I was actually getting legitimately freaked Oof. out about this this goat that was in or lamb, this <laughs> lamb that was in my back uh, of the of my car. I mean, it was basically. <laughs> How did you know I wanted that? <laughs> well, speaking of being scared, I know last week you asked me what got me scared about this movie, and I'm going to tell you. And I still reacted the same way. It's a scene inside the, what is it, the Tennessee courthouse, wherever he's being held hostage in that makeshift prison cage, which clearly, like, who has, that's not, like, where they have a giant bird cage in the, I mean, I'm not questioning it. I love this movie. But that is a real question. Like, why did we need to build him this? Like, you just don't have a normal jail cell that you could just, like, he's not Superman. But I love it. It's great. It's beautiful. I'm not going to nitpick. But um, all that to be said, that scene, when you know he's regurgitating the piece of the pen that's going to open up his uh, handcuffs and he's going to, you know, chomp into those guys' faces, that scene, the when he goes to bite into that guy's face, I covered my eyes. I've seen – there's not a graphic scene. It's not – it's nothing intense, but the way it's shot, a serial killer is attacking you. You don't feel that from gum uh, in the movie ever. You feel it just from him, that moment of pouncing. But, okay, what's interesting to me about that scene, too, is how it's played with classical music. Like, what do you think is going on there? I mean, here, let's just take a listen to it. Mm-hmm. Ready when you are, Sergeant Pembrey. Is, is, the, is the classical music there just to soften this, to soften the horror, to make sure we still like Anthony Hopkins? I think Hopkins? it's juxtaposition. I think that this movie is so aped in so many ways. I think it's showing, I mean, character-wise, because it's it's real music. It's in the scene. This is not music that is scored. He's a refined man. You know, he's drawing these beautiful pictures from memory. He, you know, he's so worldly and smart. Like, it's in his character. But that juxtaposition... I feel like you could draw – everybody does this now. 
it's like you put one type of music and you show one type of action. And it's, I mean, I don't think this movie invented it because, of course, Clockwork Orange, but I think it has a similar point yeah. of view. By the way, that last thing that he says there, I'm ready when you are, that mm. was supposed to be the original last line of the script. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Because here's how this movie was supposed to end. Not with Anthony Hopkins following Dr. Chilton to an island. It was supposed to end with him calling Clarice. And when the camera pulls back, you realize he's in an apartment and he's got Dr. Chilton all tied up already. He's already trussed and terrified. And then he's supposed to go, I'm ready when you are, Dr. Chilton. And that's when it's supposed to end. And they vetoed that. And that was actually what... Uh, Ted Talley wrote and then they decided to take that out because of a couple of things they're like we have seen him locked up in cells this whole time yeah like we want to see him free Mm. was a lot of it which I think is a great choice because you have him free like walking in this big wide open street yeah you walk out of the movie theater going is he there right now Exactly. Whereas, and then you cut back to Jodie Foster, and she's like pressed against a wall and wrapped around a cord, and it's like, oh, she's not free. Like right. he is, and she's not. Just oh, visually that, in the language of it. Yeah. Uh, but also, they're like, it's a bummer. Like and it's no, too it's much so of a much... bummer if he's like literally there with a pairing knife. It's look, you're rooting for him. You want him to kill Chilton, right? But it's it's better left to your imagination, and that's what this movie does time and time again. Everything that he is accused of, you don't see the picture of the nurse. You know, even when he's wearing this, the face of the the other guy. Oh, you, that's so gross. Oh, so, but he looks like Anthony Hopkins when he's laying down. It, but but uh, but then when he's in the ambience, a little less. They are very careful at not showing you much gore in this film. It's all in your head, and it makes it a million times worse. It's the same reason of Jaws. It's the same reason why Psycho. I think, yeah, it, it's. I think as a horror movie director it's a much more classy move if you can convey ultimate fear without actually having to be like gross you know yeah i mean because that's what we get like film is visual language you Mm -hmm. know film is not just like let me tell you a story about this dude film is like let me make you feel the story about the dude visually and i don't have to show you it like when clarice walks all the way down those stairs she's Mm -hmm. about to meet hannibal lecter that gate slams shut and all all of a sudden she's bathed in red light like she's in hell that is what it is telling you you know, and you can just make us feel that without being like, here's the nurse actually right. flayed open. They have the two choices and they go with the red light and not the flay. Let me ask you a question about like the status of this character. We have a character here who arguably is an iconic film character. I would say if you were to put a list of 10 iconic film characters, there's a chance that he's going to be on that list. Like he, no, There's stats. He is the number one villain on the AFI villain list. They wow. have a heroes and a villains list. Yeah. He's the number one villain. Who else That's, would you put on that list, by the way? Do you want to guess? Well, Darth Vader, right? Darth Vader, check. Um, I would There's. I would go with some more like classic, like Freddy Jason ones, but I feel like that's a little too lowbrow for this list. It's a little lowbrow. We've yeah. actually talked about the other ones on the list. Oh, in yeah. The top four. In the top okay. four. What do you got? All right, number one, Hannibal Lecter. Number two, Norman Bates. Great. Three, you got Darth. Four, you got the Wicked Witch. Oh, interesting. Wicked Witch. I would never have put her on that list, but that's a great choice. Yeah, it makes sense when I heard it. I was like, yep, that terrified me my entire childhood. And then I, this is not four, but for my four, I would put Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, but we're talking about a character who's only on screen for 16 minutes. That's it. 16 minutes and and the movie feels like it's a Hannibal Lecter movie. It doesn't feel like he's on the screen for 16 minutes. It doesn't it, feel like he, a Buffalo Bill movie. No, it's not a Buffalo. I mean, it's is it the performance? Is it the writing? Is it the character? Is it a combination when you have a character that becomes this iconic? I mean, I have some 
bets. Okay. I don't know if they're correct. I think a lot of it has to do with how Demi shot him. Like, you don't see him. I think that orange jumpsuit, not being an orange jumpsuit mm-hmm. is a big thing because that's kind of generic. Mm-hmm. But his look is not generic. Not having him behind prison bars, I think, is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, he's in the giant birdcage. But they built this, like, plexiglass. Everybody else yeah. is in bars. But right. he gets this clear-cut plexiglass. The camera gets to really see him mm-hmm. in a way that you wouldn't see if they had shot him in a normal prison thing. Right. So I think there's something in our just, like, visual shock of looking at him behind this thing that like i think the plexiglass was inspired by liquor stores okay you know it didn't really exist but they made it exist for this and so the camera just takes him in in a way that we wouldn't i think otherwise is part of it i also wonder if part of it is just this miraculous timing i mean silence of lambs comes out february of 1991 that summer is when jeffrey dahmer gets arrested like that summer and i wonder if there's this one-two punch where you're like Summer after or summer before? Summer after. Okay. Like this movie but, came out and then Jeffrey Dahmer got arrested. Interesting. Okay. Because I was going to so, say if it was the other way around, we, do you think that the Jeffrey Dahmer story gets more play because of this movie? You know, they, there's certain things. You know, we live in a culture right now where certain shootings don't get as much coverage as others. But I wonder if, you know, because of this movie and the way it was in the mainstream, like a lot more attention's on Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, yeah. I don't know. I don't I know. Mean, I mean, hard to shock. But like imagine this whole news cycle where you have pictures of Hannibal Lecter next to pictures of Jeffrey Dahmer in the mm. newspaper. You know? Yeah. Like, that happens. And I think when that happens, A, I think it's part of how Silence of the Lambs stayed in the culture so long to win an Oscar from February to the next March, which just, like, does not happen. You know, everybody yeah. clogs up fall. I think that's dumb. But also, the February movies really don't win. This is, like, yeah. the rare case of a February movie winning. And I think a lot of that is Jeffrey Dahmer. And by the way, February is the dump month. If you know this in, in the world of... Cinema, like, it's after the Academy Awards. It's after your Christmas movies. So it becomes the month where people are like, we don't think this is that great. February release. And then, you know, it just normally, it's a place where movies go to die. And then occasionally they put a good movie there and it's like number one for like nine weeks. It's like, oh, Bad Moms, still number one at the box office? Yeah, because there's nothing else out there. And people are like, we're in. So yeah, it's sort and of. Now people are starting to try to game it a bit. But exactly, it's like, yeah. Which good. I want us to have like good movies every month of the year. Of course. But there was a, that, during this time, that was a dump month yeah but the idea of a movie like silence of the lambs winning best picture is nuts right like yeah. in any given thing i think if you take dom out of the equation it doesn't win to be honest which is bizarre but i think there's something in this you know the other ones in the top four darth vader doesn't exist norman bates kind of yeah mm-hmm. like norman bates is two wicked witch doesn't exist but so you, the top yeah. two are things that could happen in the real world and the bottom two are myth let me ask you my second question then in that which is why does his career continue in and I would say flourish after this movie and other people who've taken parts like this go away? Because Hopkins you know was, him. Yeah. You know you like when you look at him, you go, that's Hannibal Lecter. But Yeah. I mean, is he so good at being posh? Is he so good at being like a butler in remains of the day? Mm-hmm. You know, that we need that niche filled? Do we just really want, like, a British person to tell us what's up? If he's an American playing this part, does he get welcomed into American roles? Is Anthony Hopkins so niche already as highbrow British that we just think of highbrow British as being a little bit vaguely evil anyway, so we let them transition? I mean, you think about all the people in the Harry Potter movies, all the evil teachers. Yeah. They're able to come back over here, maybe because we're at peace with, like, an evil Brit, but we're not at peace with an evil American. I, I buy that, and I'll go one step on the other side of the equation and say, maybe... It's because you like him. You don't like Norman Bates. You're not engaged by Norman Bates. Like I 
enjoy that performance. I like that role. But there is something about him that you want him to kill Chilton at the end. Like, you're okay with him being out there. He is pure evil. But he kind of tricks us, too. I'm going to say a word out loud that I've never said. I'm okay. kind of nervous about it. All right. I, I feel very nervous about this. I think Hannibal Lecter is a zaddy. Oh, my God. Zaddy, dropping the zaddy bomb. I know. I'm, like, a little ashamed I even said that out loud. No, I put that in my uh, my <laughs> I put that in my <laughs> Cosmic Ghostwriter comic book that just came uh, out. But what I mean by that is, like, you want Hannibal Lecter to approve of you. Do you know mm. you want to win his approval? He's, there's something yes, so powerful you're right. about him. And, and the way that, that we're viewing him. you, you're like, oh, my God. Whereas if Norman Bates likes you, it's a little creepy. You want to go to your room. Well, how about this? Because we're looking at it through Jodie Foster's eyes. We are Jodie Foster, the film audience. And so they have this relationship. So we're viewing it more sympathetically than other films. Amy, we just broke the fucking code. <laughs> Um, now, did you notice the other interesting thing about Hannibal Lecter in this film? Hmm. The thing that we are coming across time and time again. This movie is full of memorable lines, not just from Hannibal Lecter, but also from Buffalo Bill. Uh, I mean, in the most weird way. Rob Hubel, uh, one of my closest friends, uh, will do a Buffalo Bill voice that makes me laugh. Like, I was laughing last night because basically every line Buffalo Bill says I've heard said to me by Rob Hubel at certain <laughs> points in my life. Really? Um, Even this one? Sadly, Amy, yes. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, one of the most memorable lines from this movie, Hello, Clarice, is not actually said in the film. It is actually, Good evening, Clarice. Oh, yes. so we have another, like, false memory. Yeah, it's an interesting, weird thing. It's like, Hello, Clarice, is such a go-to line that's not a real line. Um, you know, okay, so we can't really talk about Bill with getting into the messiness of Bill. Yes. I thought it was really interesting because I don't remember a lot of the news stories, you know, from when this film came out. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, we like, were relatively young when yeah. this movie came out. We were kids. But when I was going back and reading about it, like reading about it with the original clips, it was really wild to realize that Silence of the Lambs was a big deal, a huge fight in the LGBTQ community, you know, because of the character Buffalo Bill. Because what is it saying with Bill? Is it saying that trans people are murderers? Is it calling into question this idea of a person who's sort of gender fluid seeming or at least trying to be out of his skin, trying to change himself? Well, it seems that these people are cruel or evil, you know? Yeah, I mean, it seems even the way that they deal with sexuality in this movie is complex because when they speak about him trying to get a sex change and being rejected like it's almost like yeah he he's not doesn't want to really be a woman it's like they're questioning even his own mentality it's it's interesting they're they're prescribing how he feels and i, I that's what i really was paying attention to because he kind of clued me in a little bit yeah i mean to sort of like say what was going on um there's a group called hash they're mm -hmm. the homosexuals against stereotypes of hollywood and they wanted to protest the Oscars. They said they were going to like stand in front of the Oscars and hold out maps to the homes of actual gay movie stars mm -hmm. as a way of sort of like threatening the Academy not to give it any awards. Uh, there was another group called Queer Nation, and they wanted to block the cars on the way to the Oscars. They were calling it a stall in. And it seems to be sort of this movement uh, that really makes a lot of sense in the context of everything that was happening with movies trying to messily talk about homosexuality in the early 90s while doing it in a way that was really clumsy. You know, they, like, I mean, Queer Nation would also do this thing where they would stand in front of Basic Instinct and they would scream the ending to people going inside to buy a ticket as a way of, like, getting them to not buy a ticket to this wow. movie. And because there was just, like, so 
few characters represented on screen. Well, but, I was like, going to argue that every time there was a person, yeah, it really mattered. And in a lot of ways, Hollywood is making these characters villains, and so See, it, it hurt. I didn't feel like this movie was overtly stereotyping uh, homosexuality. It, it felt like this is a very complex character, but that wasn't that didn't seem at the forefront to me. Like. You know, I think the way the movie kind of describes it is like, here's somebody who wants to get a sex change. He can't get a sex change. So what he's going to do is basically build the body that he wants from the parts of other people, right? I mean, but I don't I don't know if this is somebody who is cross-dressing or is this someone who is trans. I don't I don't know. I mean, yeah, it doesn't I mean, it's not very clear. And maybe the, that sloppiness is what is troubling to, or or just lack of representation. I don't know. It did I I'm and and forgive me for wrestling with it. I'm just trying to like understand it too. Yeah, I mean, I think there is wrestling. I mean, like Ted Devine who plays Bill. Like here's what he had to say about it. I never played him as being gay. Male sexuality is a complicated thing, you know, and goes all kinds of different directions, you know. I met with female impersonators. I went to some very interesting bars, you know, looking and talking to people about, you know, a side of life that I'm not familiar with. And I came to the conclusion that, 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 that none of that had anything really to do with this. If the guy was gay, he'd be killing and maiming boys and men, and he was killing women. And he was scared about the gay thing, too. And I said, don't worry, this is not a gay character. You don't want to beat that movie cliche over the head of the, you know, the mincing uh, homosexual. The stance I took was more one of an acutely homophobic, heterosexual man doing that mocking thing. I kind of took it that he was sort of imitating his, the way his mother might have talked to the poodle. By hearing that voice, in a sense, he's sort of talking to himself, you know, his inner poodle, as it were. I mean, in that description, he's describing somebody who sounds... Like Norman Bates, to be mm -hmm. honest, like the mother thing, the talking to yourself, the uncomfortability with your own desires. And I can believe that that's how Ted Devine might have seen it. But also there are lines in the script for in scenes he's not in where like that character is described as dating a guy named Benjamin. Right. Oh, I forgot about that. So yeah. I don't I mean, to me, when he gets dressed up like that, he just looks like David Lee Roth. But yeah, no, I feel like he's somebody who some man who's making a skin suit to look like a woman. For whatever reason that is, we don't know, and we're and we won't know, and the only way that we know is through other people's interpretation of him. But just like Anthony Hopkins telling Jodie Foster, "You're from a poor family," it's it's someone's opinion. I also take a question to what we just heard there too. He's like, "Well, if he was gay, he'd be killing boys and men." It's like, is that true? I I I, I don't know. I don't think you can prescribe anything absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's really messy. And one of the things I thought was interesting was I found this clipping from The Village Voice, you know, mm -hmm. when the film came out. And it was basically several pages of The Village Voice, three, four, five, dedicated to letting a dozen different critics, most of them LGBTQ, wrestle it out. Like, is this movie bad? Like, is this bad for us? And they took all sorts of different stances. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of pros. There were a lot of cons. There was one that I'm going to read not even necessarily because I believe in what it says about this movie, but just because it reminds me of Twitter. So here I go. This is from um, the Village Voice arts critic Gary Indiana, and he wrote in this roundtable, this, I'm summarizing some of it. Righteous indignation is a tonic feeling, no doubt, but America has been somewhat too generously blessed with people who lather at the mouth over trivia, bend themselves into pretzels about nothing, and expect the applause of idiots to shower them in glory. 
It is a great pity that part of the amorphous entity known as the gay community encourages the demagoguery of several such people as a substitute for rational argument and fair-minded political discussion, simply because 50% of what such people say is true, but the other 50% is horseshit motivated by the seven deadly sins. Envy, 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 and envy. And then he goes on to say, the style of argument that hypothesizes that because your friends are dying, your own lunatic ravings against the people you envy are haloed in nobility is not as original as it might appear to those who did not live through the McCarthy era. To those speaking on behalf of their dying friends, I wish their friends had better friends. And that wow. just like chilled me yeah. so much. Look, the same way that we can't look at Hannibal Lecter with fresh eyes. We can't even look at this with fresh eyes. I would imagine a lot of the uproar in this film had to do with that dance. Uh, you know, and and was and what was that dance saying? You know, like cuz that dance is an interesting dance. It's a very provocative moment in the film. He's he's dancing around, he's doing putting on makeup, he has a wig on. He's actually enjoying his body, which I find that's, to be surprising given that so much of the thesis of this character is he doesn't like his body. And that's kind of what I was thinking about and watching it now. I'm like, oh, I'm watching it with maybe 2019 eyes versus 1990s eyes. You know, like that seemed probably scary and like, ooh, creepy in the 90s to people who've seen it for the first time. But now it doesn't read creepy. It seems more character-based. It's interesting, though, that 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 dance, you know, was not in the screenplay. But it was in the original book. The actor uh, who played this character, Ted Devine, felt like it helped show another side of the character. And I think that scene is an interesting scene. Yeah, you there's know? something like very like alive about him in that moment. Something He's that's likable in that moment. He, yeah. That character doesn't in that moment has nothing to do with the person who answers the door when Jodie Foster knocks. Well, it's interesting because that character I think is even like, there's many different characters of that of Buffalo Bill. It's like. You have the help me with the couch character, the, the weak kind yeah, of character. Which makes me so sad, the idea that helping somebody gets you killed. Then you have the high status, literally at the top of the well with the dog, just like calling the woman it, yeah. you know, and-, and Making and get, fun of her screams, which I find so chilling. So chilling. And then you have, you know, this moment where he's at the door and it's scared. It's different. It's like- who like he's kind of wants somebody in his life, but he also is scared. Like you see a whole nother side of him. And then that moment almost seems like the pure joy. To Demi's credit, I think Demi was really horrified mm -hmm. at, at the criticism. And I think he took it. I think he actually absorbed it. I don't think he bounced, bounced yeah. off and got all defensive. I think, I mean, like one of the things he said right before it came out when he was starting, I think to kind of spidey sense that this was going to be a conversation was, you know, like, if I am found, this is what he said, if I am found eventually through debate on the subject to be guilty to some extent of functioning as a tool of homophobia, I will learn a lot from it. Hmm. You know, and then the next film he makes is Philadelphia. So I think right. he very much, I think he's an empathetic guy who was doing a book that maybe was a little less empathetic. Well, let and me ask you this, though. Do you think that this movie is problematic? I mean. Because I'll, I'll, I'll jump yeah. in and say, I, I don't read that from this movie. Yeah. I don't. And. We're doing so much looking at films from the past and, oh, that's problematic now. Yeah. And I kind of look at this movie and looking at it in the future and go, I don't think it's problematic now. I mean, I think one of the I things Demi said later that I really can agree with, like, like, because he said that last thing I said before it came out. Mm -hmm. And then now, before he died, his stance was more, 
I wish I would have highlighted his own abuse because, like, you get references to mm-hmm. it. I can imagine also if you highlighted his abuse more, then you'd get into, like, why are we empathizing with a serial killer? Right. You know, there's it's almost, like, cyclical. You can't really get out of it. But he saw this character as an abused character and as a victim himself, even as he was doing horrible things. And I think he felt like maybe it was a fair criticism that that part doesn't come through. And again, I, I have this conversation with you in a very open way because I don't know all the answers. I don't pretend to know all the answers. I'm just... I mean, what do you do when somebody has to be the monster? But also, what do you do when, especially in the 90s, where there weren't that many gay characters? Yeah. And what do you do when those two Venn diagrams happen to overlap in one of the biggest hits of the year that wins a bunch of Oscars? I mean, it becomes almost comically one of the biggest movies of all time. Okay, we've been talking about this fictional case. Now let's talk to somebody who knows about real serial killers, somebody who's worked these cases. We're going to bring onto the show Paul Holes. And who Paul Holes is, you might already know him from his podcast, Murder Squad, where they're working on cold cases and looking for actual help from people who are listening. He's also a cold case investigator who spent 27 years working here in California. That meant that he worked on Lacey Peterson, J.C. Duggard. He also worked on biggies like the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer. He helped catch the Golden State Killer. Uh, Paul Holes, welcome to Unschooled. All right, so Paul, I'm going to ask you the big one first. What does it take to find a killer? Well, you know, it's uh, it depends on the killer. You know, if you have a very sophisticated and intelligent killer like the Golden State Killer, it is um, all-consuming to follow all the various investigative paths and use all the technologies available to you in order to try to do it because these cases are hard, especially when you're talking about fantasy-motivated crimes where it's possible that the killer and the victim don't know each other at all. And uh, so it, it is a lot of work. One of the things I admire about Sounds of the Lambs is, like, it shows you the work. But I'm wondering, for somebody actually in the crime community, who who most of your friends, I'm assuming, or acquaintances are in the crime community as well, how do you guys see Silence of the Lambs? Well, I will tell you that when that movie first came out, I thoroughly enjoyed it. In fact, I, I found it inspirational. Um, of course, I'm critiquing it as, you know, I'm watching it. But it, in many ways, it helped portray, you know, really the behavioral science aspect. It was the first movie that I can think of that really put the the idea of criminal profiling into the forefront as to how it could benefit trying to solve, you know, a homicide case. I love that. I mean, I'm coming at this with a little bit of outsider ignorance, so forgive me if what I say sounds awful, but I've always wondered a little bit like what's the deal with behavioral psychology because it seems like half the time they always just wind up saying it's a white guy in his 30s to 40s who has problems with women. That seems to cover a lot of it. And, and that's one of the things when you when you talk to criminal profilers um, and, and they're asked to do that type of offender profiling in cases – but many of them, that's the least favorite thing they do, and it's also the least informative thing they do. They really shine when they're starting to assess, you know, the behaviors at a crime scene. This is sort of the type of offender you're looking at, as well as if the, when the guy's caught, sort of like interview strategies based on who the guy is and what his psychology is, how to push this guy's button. That's where these... these uh, Criminal profilers and forensic psychologists, that's where they make their hay. That's become, they become very valuable in those situations. You know, if you walk into a crime scene, obviously it was a blitz attack. Uh, you have an offender that wasn't 
taking any cautions about leaving evidence. And so he's leaving, you know, his fingerprints and the victim's blood all over the place. He's tromping through there. Uh, the scene itself is is often very disturbing, you know, in terms of maybe there's been a lot of violence done to the victim. That doesn't make much sense. It almost looks like it's frenzied. And this would kind of fall in line with what uh, a profiler would call as a disorganized offender. And anytime you have that disorganization happening at a crime scene, there's a chance you're dealing with an offender that has some sort of psychosis. He's got a, a mental state that often will lend itself, you know, to be recognizable in his, you know, everyday life because he'll be disheveled. He doesn't take care of himself. His car is a mess. He can't hold on to a job versus your organized offender like a Ted Bundy who is planning and trying to avoid leaving evidence. You know, you can see that at a crime scene, and that gives you insight into the type of person you're looking for as an investigator. That's interesting. I mean, that makes me wonder if those two archetypes, the disorganized and the organized, I mean, is that pairing up fairly well with Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs versus Hannibal Lecter? Yeah, in, in some ways. And, and, you know, obviously, when you look at Hannibal Lecter, he is your prototypical organized offender. I mean, he's like the extreme uh, in terms of the type of persona that we would see in, in this kind of predatory crime. Uh, versus Buffalo Bill, you know, he's a mix. You know, he's showing some some disorganized aspects, but then he's also replicating like Ted Bundy, you know, the whole scene where he's luring the, the woman. You know, he's got the, the sofa and he's got his arm in a cast and he's saying, hey, I need your help. You know, that is a Ted Bundy type of scenario in terms of trying to isolate the victim and get her to where now you can get control over her without having to, you know, really put yourself at risk. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because, like, Paul and I have been trying to kind of grapple with the character of Buffalo Bill, you know, who has, seems to be described as so many different things in the movie. You know, uncomfortable with his body, but he also seems to be really comfortable with his body when he's dancing in the mirror. You're the expert. Does Buffalo Bill, that character, feel real to you? He feels to me like he was inspired by so many different killers that maybe he doesn't add up to one killer. Right, and I, and I think that that that's exactly it. Because obviously, you know the uh, you know the fattening of the victims in order to you know, basically skin them for the the suits that he's making. Well, that's inspired by Ed Gein. Then you've got you know the Ted Bundy inspiration. Um, you know he he is very much a a mix. And so in in many ways, when you look at it, it would be like yeah, you know he's it's not consistent with the the mental state of a real offender. He's probably too mixed to be real, but there are so many personalities out there. It would not shock me that there could be an offender that is demonstrating sort of that mixture themselves. I mean, you know, what's interesting is like a lot of these killers that were name checking seem to be working in like the 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, the Golden State Killer who you caught, like he started in the 70s. He kind of wrapped up in the 80s a little bit. There's a few outliers like Dahmer, you know, who's like starts in the 80s, then gets arrested in 1991. But I keep thinking, like, at least from my perception of the news, you know, today when a serial killer winds up in the news, a lot of times it's because of people like you who caught a cold case. You stuck with it. You found somebody who was offending but had kind of largely stopped by now. Is Has there been a drop-off in serial killers working today, new guys on the scene now? I guess I'm talking about them like they're a band, but... 
You, you know, and I've, I've uh, kind of been asked that question, and I've had sort of the same questions myself because I, just in my jurisdiction, you know, I would see sort of uh, kind of waves of serial predator type crime with the cold cases that I was working, the unsolved cold cases I was working. You know, 1960s, 1970s was a very uh, high volume time for this type of crime. And then I saw it dip in the 80s and start picking up back in the 90s. But there was a change. And, and the change uh, really had to do with a change in our societal culture. In the 1960s, 1970s, you do see more of these, these guys breaking into houses. Well, a lot of these people never locked their front doors because nobody, you know, they, they weren't concerned about being burglarized. These were safe neighborhoods. Um, there weren't security systems. There weren't surveillance systems. So committing a crime where you are invading somebody else's home, like the Golden State Killer, you didn't have as many barriers to prevent getting caught that you do today. If everybody's locking their doors and now everybody's got deadbolts installed on their primary entry doors, you know, uh, back and front and garage. So it's much, much harder today to commit that type of crime of breaking into a house. You know, I'm wondering, I mean, now when I think of people publicly trying to psychoanalyze a killer, it seems like that energy is less on serial killers and now more on mass shooters. I mean, is mass shooters just our new, our main type of public villain? Well, I, I think so, because anytime you have a mass shooting, of course, it gets a lot of media attention. And obviously, mass shooters typically go into pools of victims that, uh, you know, in, in many ways strike terror with the general population. That's why they choose to shoot at schools or shoot in movie theaters. And so, of course, the news is going to really kind of put that out there because they know that they have that audience. Everybody's going to be scared of, of the possibility of being a victim of a mass shooter. Um, a mass shooter is, from a psychology standpoint, a completely different beast than a fantasy-motivated killer. The type of predator that is portrayed in Silence of the Lamb, it's a very, very different psychology. And I know for me, I'm much more interested in understanding the sort of the fantasy-motivated killer to how does this guy, you know, end up kind of sexualizing the violence and and deciding that his fantasy life is going to be doing horrific things to his victims. Um, the mass shooter oftentimes is a much simpler psychology. You know, somebody who has felt wronged during, you know, a portion of their life, whether it be their upbringing or something more recent, they got terminated and they've decided that they want to go out with a bang in essence and they want to get back at the people who caused them problems and they want that last kind of, in their minds, you know, minute of glory with their name being in the headlines. You know, and that in, in many ways, it's, it's they probably have felt that they've never gotten the recognition they deserved earlier in life, so now they're going to get that recognition. And the, 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 the media plays to that. Let, let's talk about the Golden State Killer for a second, you know, because you know, this has been in the news because this was a case that was also sort of partially solved with you know, the kind of genetic uploading of DNA that people have been talking about. And there's, you know, like, is this moral? Is this ethical? People on this podcast know that I'm terrified to actually get the Ancestry.com kit that my mom sent me done because I'm just worried. I don't know. I'm just worried about my DNA being out there. Would you say in terms of like 
the crime-solving method that people are leaning on right now, that DNA has overtaken psychology? When you start utilizing psychology in criminal investigations, it is a subjective form of science. You know, you have people, often very educated people, who are evaluating um, sometimes very complex aspects and then forming an opinion. And a, a different person who has the same types of credentials could look at the same material and form a different opinion. DNA is objective. So if you get a DNA sample from the crime scene and you are able to match that to an individual, you can say that individual donated that DNA. Now, how does that DNA relate to the crime? And that's where the subjectivity comes in sometimes. You know, sometimes it's very obvious. You have a rape victim and, you know, the, the guy's DNA is found off of her vaginal swab. However, sometimes it isn't that clear cut. You may find a DNA on a doorknob that comes back to somebody, you know, and that's the room that this person was uh, a victim had been killed in. When did he leave that DNA on a doorknob? Has he been there previously? And that's where it's so important to establish, let's say, during an interview of that suspect, have you ever been in that room? And if he says, no, I have never been in that room, and then at some point you confront him and says, well, you, your, your DNA was on the doorknob. How do you account for that? And if he continues to still deny, you know, it, it has a tendency to show that he's, he's starting to lie. You still, even though DNA is objective, it's, it's still something that has a subjective component. You know, with your forgiveness, I want to ask you about a film that's not on our list, but is beloved by a lot of people who love movies. And it's about a case that you know very well yourself, that you've you've actually worked on, The Zodiac Killer. I mean, what's your take on Fincher's movie Zodiac? Well, I have to admit, I have never watched that movie. Oh, so, <laughs> how, do, how are you not curious enough to watch it? You know, because it's one of those things where, you know, I... I've worked the real case, and so the movie was, oh, well, that's interesting, but I, I didn't need to see somebody's rendition of the case. You know, I've read the, the books that Robert Graysmith wrote, you know, and those were good books, in, 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 you know, for what they were. Um, and it, it's one of those things where you see the author, you know, taking certain liberties or drawing certain conclusions that as an investigator, I would go, well, no, you can't, you can't draw that conclusion you know, especially when you start putting somebody's name out there as this guy, this has to be the, you know, the Zodiac, Arthur Lee Allen has to be the Zodiac. And I'm looking at the, you know, the, the circumstantial evidence that he lays out in his book. And I'll say, you know what, I had numerous individuals in Golden State Killer that had stronger circumstantial evidence showing they were the Golden State Killer than what Graysmith lays out for Arthur Lee Allen. And I eliminated all my suspects as the Golden State Killer using DNA up until the time we found D'Angelo. That is totally fair. Have you seen Seven? Oh, I love Seven. <laughs> I mean, is Kevin Spacey's John Doe credible? That he is a very interesting uh, offender. You know, obviously, he is—he's a missionary-oriented offender. You know, he's got the what, what is it—the seven uh, deadly sins. You know, and so he's going out killing based on people that are. You know, gluttonous, uh, as an example. You do see those missionary-type offenders, but he takes it to a whole new level. And then, of course, kind of, I think it was an apartment that he was living in, which was so creepy when they went in there, you know, and he's got all those writings. Um, I, I found that fascinating. Now, is he credible? 
Um, he's probably, again, he's, he's like a Hannibal Lecter, just a different type of offender, sort of on the extreme end. Could somebody end up being an offender like that? It, I would say it's possible, but I, I'm not familiar with one that probably is as extreme as uh, Spacey's character is in Seven. If I can ask a personal question, what was your Lamb's moment? You know, Jodie Foster has her speech where she's like talking about hearing these bleats and like kind of dedicating her life to saving victims. What was it that motivated you to make this your career? You know, um, in in some ways, probably November of 1998, and uh, I had a case. A uh, 15-year-old girl that went missing, and then she's found a, a week later. And I'm, I'm was responsible. Not only was I out at the crime scene, but then I was dealing with her body uh, at the morgue. And it was one of those things where you, you know you're looking at this poor girl, um, and you go, you can't have somebody do this to to a girl like this. And so for me, that that echo uh, is always in the back of my my brain about looking at that girl um, and, and, and some of the other women that this particular guy killed. Once I was exposed to the reality of that, that's when you go, okay, this is my mission. And in doing that, I mean, you've, caught, you've helped catch the Alphabet Killer, not to mention the Golden State Killer, not to mention Daryl Kemp. I mean, you've done so much, which is why I hope you don't mind me also putting you on the spot with this question. If somebody made a movie about you, who could you see playing you? Oh, jeez. It, it, I, I, I really couldn't tell you. You know, I think people have said that uh, I look like Josh Duomo, who used to be married to Fergie. Um, and uh, I kind of like that comparison because uh, he's a fellow Minnesota Viking fan. So it's like, OK. Uh, <laughs> you do look I, a bit really like Josh know. Duomo. You do. I just yeah, looked at it. <laughs> it's, uh, that's a tough one for me to to, to be able to because to, it's I don't see myself as other people see myself. You know, it's like. Anytime I've seen myself on tel- television or I hear myself talking, it's like I look like that, I talk like that, you know. So it's it's hard for me to kind of step outside of my inner self in order to try to figure out, okay, who would be the person that would portray me? I just don't know. Well, that takes the skills of somebody who's a behavioral psychologist, perhaps. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, Paul, this has been so fun talking to you. Um, you have this awesome podcast, Murder Squad. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, uh, Billy Jensen, uh, investigative reporter, and myself, we uh, formed the Murder Squad. And, and, and in many ways, this is, uh, you know, Billy's creative genius. He's, he's somebody that has employed uh, utilizing social media and crowdsourcing to actually help law enforcement solve several homicides across the nation. And so when we started getting together and we met as a result of Michelle McNamara, and we got talking after she passed away and recognized that we had you know, some commonalities in terms of how we look at cases. We're both drawn to the unsolved cases. Um, we didn't want, if we were going to do a podcast, we didn't want to necessarily just sit down and talk, you know, tell a story. We wanted to be able to make an impact on the cases. And that's what I've done my entire career. That's what Billy has tried to do as a civilian, uh, as that investigative uh, journalist. So um, the murder squad, we currently are, are going after cases, and usually, you know, we know who is responsible. They've been caught, but there's unanswered questions about the case, uh, and it's utilizing the listeners uh, 
and the skill sets of these listeners and the breadth of the, the number of people that are listening to put that question out to them. We give them, a, in, in many ways, a thumbnail sketch of the case, uh, who this guy was, and then ask the question, ask for help. I love that. I mean, you got me thinking in this interconnected world, podcasts play a part. That's wonderful. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, Paul, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for, for, for all of your brain, letting us dig into your brain and learn everything about this case. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Amy, I want to get into how this film was received. We know that it was released in 1991. It grossed $272.7 million worldwide. It was made on a $19 million budget, very small budget. Giant, 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 giant hit. We already know it wins Oscars. You know, we know how some people react to the movie, but how about critics? Did they like this movie? Well, yeah, I wanted to read uh, Stuart Clowens from The Nation because mm-hmm. he was one of the voices who really found this element problematic. Um, so I'll read a little bit of that. But where he goes in this review is not just calling it out, but saying that this film seems aware enough of the problems that that becomes a greater mistake. So here's mm. what he says. If you ask nothing more of a movie than effective storytelling, you might as well stop reading here. I guarantee Silence of the Lambs will give your nervous system a thorough massage. But if you want to know why you're being worked over, the movie becomes even more problematic. I actually didn't know we used problematic that much in 1991. We did. Um, The best answer is that the protagonist is a woman. She might even be a lesbian. You get the sense that she wouldn't be distracted by a man if Nick Nolte himself crossed her path. (laughs) Uh, okay, a lot of laughs in here for Nick Nolte. Um, I mean, that. by the way, everything that that person just said is so fucking crazy. She's a lesbian who would, like, that couldn't resist the allure of Nick Nolte. <laughs> Holy shit. I have more issues with that than I do with anything in this movie. So then he says, one step forward for American cinema and one giant step back because the villain of Silence of the Lambs is, and here I'm using his words now, a mincing queen. Granted, there's some double talk in the script about the killer not really being homosexual, but if you dropped him in the middle of a Mel Brooks movie, most people would get the idea. To Mel Brooks, that would make him a figure of fun. In The Silence of Lambs, it makes him evil incarnate. Never mind that the great majority of violence against women is committed by straight men. Never mind that being gay, even on the streets of Manhattan, is enough to turn a man into a target for batting practice. The secret of Jack the Ripper has been revealed at last. He's a... And there's a word I actually can't use. Um... I suspect Demi knew he was doing wrong because the rest of the film plays as a muddle-headed attempt to back away from this image. And that I find interesting because there is that line where Jodie Foster is like, I thought most trans people were actually nonviolent. Yeah. You know, she sort of corrects oh, this right, image. Yeah. She inserts that in here. But he says that the sort of tell rather than show scenes of him overcorrecting, he finds, are, quote, as convincing as a pitchman's lecture on a two-headed calf. And then he says that the bogus revelations that come out of that are, quote, as banal as they are anticlimactic. Huh. So he doesn't just take offense with this subtext or maybe like above ground text, I yeah. guess. Um, he says that in correcting it, the film actually gets worse. Hmm. This is really interesting. I'm thinking about all that. You know, he wasn't the only person who didn't like the movie. Mr. Gene Siskel did not like this movie. Gave it a thumbs down calling it a star-studded freak show. Uh, and it was a case of much ado about nothing. Whoa, Cisco! I mean, Cisco yeah. was 
Siskel did not like violent movies for the most. By part. the way, but I keep on reading all the stuff that you know Scott Glenn turned down his part in the in the second movie because he's like I was still too haunted by the role. You know, uh, everyone's haunted by this role. It's like I, I don't know what's so. Sc- I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because we live in a world where like you know Mind Hunter is like a Netflix series that I feel like deals with things like this too, where we know more about serial killers. We've seen a lot more. I, I don't. I mean, and again, maybe this is, again, why I can't put myself in the mindset of this uh, time and era, and I'm looking at it slightly differently. Um, Amy, I imagine, I mean, look, there's no doubt that Homer has been put in a Hannibal Lecter-style face mask, right? Or Mr. Burns. Someone has been in a face mask on this show. Many, 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 many people have been in face masks on The Simpsons. I didn't cut those because... It's silent. Right, sure. How am I going to show you? I mean, there has been a clip from an episode we touched on a lot, A Star is Burns, where Hannibal Lecter himself auditions to play Burns. Mm-hmm. Sir, the actors are here to audition for the part of you. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so yeah. that happens. But then there's also a larger episode that is just more thematically The Silence of the Lambs. And that is an episode called The Great Louse Detective. When someone tries to kill Homer Simpson, in order to figure out who is trying to kill Homer Simpson, they have the brilliant idea of letting a true killer live in the Simpsons' house, played by, of course, Sideshow Bob. Oh, which one of these psychos is going to help me catch my killer? He's right in here. Oh, come now. We've been through so much together. Just call me Bob. Ah, Bob! (laughs) (laughs) Now, Amy, you often torture me with uh, clips of terrible things. And this is something that when I worked at Blockbuster Video, because this is prime Blockbuster Video working time for me uh, when this movie came out, there's another movie that came out. And uh, a movie that I think really sends up this film in, in the proper way it deserves it's called Silence of the Hams and stars Dom DeLuise. What could be worse than a psychopathic serial killer with an overactive appetite for destruction? Introducing Special Agent Jody Foster. Jody Foster? Happy friend. What's your joke? He's FBI. 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 Morning, George. Dawn of the Dead, is it? <laughs> He's a good guy with some bad habits. And a sixth sense for sniffing out the criminally offensive. Thank you, smelly thing. Cabin Fever Entertainment is proud to present... A killer comedy with cutting-edge commentary and stabbing satire. Hold on to your hernias for a spoof of epic proportions. The Silence of the Hams. And just so you know, that was Billy Zane playing Jodie Foster. Wow. The idea that you could just call the character Jodie Foster, that's actually brilliant. J-O-D-E-E Foster. Joe Spash D. And no. yeah, I mean, I, I highly recommend, we just played a clip of that trailer. I highly recommend you watch the entire thing. It's pretty amazing. Okay, well now I'm going to torture you with a clip from the musical, Silence the Musical. What? <laughs> I thought I won this round. 
It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this when it's told. Oh, Jesus. It rubs the lotion on its skin, or else it gets the hose. And when it's done, there's one more thing: a simple little test. Put the fucking lotion in the basket. Oh man. Put the fucking lotion in the basket. All these stupid women are the same. Helps me not to think of them as human, so I call them it instead of by their names. So your skin gets loosed up crying now, you big fat moose. Just put the fucking lotion on your skin. And then- All right. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Oh, my God. Uh, the same people who wrote that are allegedly writing a Schindler's List musical. No, 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 no. Um, Amy, I guess the question to you right now from me is uh, this movie is currently on the list. It dropped a few places on this list. Would you um, keep it on the list? Is this a movie that stays on the best films of all time list? I think I could see keeping it around here, maybe a little lower. I'd be happy with that. It's 74th. You want it lower than 74th? I'd be okay if it was lower, but I like the idea of it on the list. Although I want to make sure that this isn't just me being like, more horror on this list, because this film isn't even pure horror, to be honest. No, yeah. I mean, I think... When you have a film that that kind of sweeps the Oscars like this, that is a box office hit like this, that creates an iconic character like this. That is that, so well directed. That's that so, is well so well directed. And that has influenced so, so much of what we see and ingest now. I think, you know, whether it's conscious or unconscious, you know, Sons of the Lamb still is a movie that uh, is in our culture. You know, I I, I think without a doubt, I would keep this movie on the list. I, I don't have a firm opinion if it should go lower or higher or whatever. I think uh, I'm happy where it is. I'm happy if it goes up a couple too. I just think it's a, um, it's just a well-executed movie. It's something f- completely different than what we've seen on this list. Um, and We it's, don't even have that many films from the 90s, to be honest. Yeah. It makes me a little protective of our modernish films. I think that what I often find with films like this is they show their age a lot. And we've talked about an area in this film that could be problematic and is problematic to people. But I still feel like this movie, when you put it in, plays out really, really well. It doesn't, uh, it feels like some of the classics that we've talked about that are much, much older. Now, Amy, you know that we've stopped using the die. We're moving down the list. And we put this list together, not super consciously, a little consciously, just to kind of ebb and flow through stuff. But I didn't realize until I looked at what's next that we have a little synergy here. We have Silence of the Lambs going into To Kill a Mockingbird. Both, you know, these ideas of silencing something that is cute and something. Yeah, there's something really interesting with that. Yeah, um, I mean, we, put, we kind of assembled this list with more of an eye of like – Old films, new films, you know, spacing it out, you know, like moving around the list a lot. But I didn't realize that we are going from the number one villain to the number one hero, Atticus Finch. Wow. Okay. Well, this is going to be great. Okay. Well, here's a call to action for this week. I mean, it was a big deal a couple years ago when the sequel, prequel, whatever you want to call it, spiritual prequel, spiritual sequel, whatever, Ghost Set of Watchmen came out, the Harper Lee book that, you know, she did not seem to want published in her life until suddenly she did. But- 
if they do do a sequel, a film version sequel of Ghost at a Watchman, who should play Atticus Finch today? Ooh, that's a great question. And I think I know my answer. Okay. Well, write your answer down on a piece of paper, okay. you, and show me next week. But for everybody else, call in to 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And tell us who you think should play Atticus Finch today. All right, Amy, we'll see you next week as we get into To Kill a Mockingbird. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, Jazos. (laughs) Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.